Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Mick Sullivan, and this is The Past and the Curious. It's the 79th episode of The Past and the Curious. Yeah, don't know what I'm going to do for the big 80. Actually, I do, but I'm not going to talk about that right now because we've got stories to tell about stars and women and people seeing things falling from the sky. Holy cannoli. Yes, it's a really fun episode. Um, But first, I should tell you, if you are near Louisville, Kentucky on June 3rd, Saturday, June 3rd, where I work, the Fraser History Museum. We are celebrating Kentucky's 231st birthday. Remember, the sisters who wrote Happy Birthday are from Kentucky. And I'm going to be doing the program that I did in Boston at WBUR back in April. I'm going to do an, uh, just a slightly adapted version of that at 1130 and it's a pay what you wish sort of deal so if you can make it i hope you make it it'll be great to see you and meet you and uh um, or maybe i already know you probably quite a few of you um i hope you can make it i also hope you enjoy the show i've got a lot more stuff to fill you in about at the end of this episode but we should get started in the cold months at the end of 1848 a gold medal arrived in nantucket delivered by boat, which was how everything was delivered to Nantucket at the time. The arrival was expected and anticipated. This was a big deal because the hefty and oversized gold coin had come directly from the King of Denmark, and it was bound for the home of a 29-year-old Nantucket native named Mariah Mitchell. One side of the round metal had the king's face. Kings like to do that sort of thing. They're always putting their faces on things. The other side, however, depicted the goddess Urania, also known as the muse of astronomy. Off the coast of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, 30 miles into the Atlantic Ocean, sits the island of Nantucket. As an island in the ocean, it's fair to call the place isolated. If anyone in the past wanted to get there, they really had to want it. A visit to the town required a boat, time, and typically, some hard work. The native Wampanoag people, as well as other indigenous people, would venture to the island as a fishing post in the summer, but most found during the winter months that there were far better places to be. European colonists made their way to live on the island in the 1600s, and the culture that developed was as unique as their choice of remote island home. Nantucket became the center of the American whaling industry for centuries. Men, and quite often boys, would head out on boats for years, years at a time. They spent those long periods fighting seasickness and in search of whales and their valuable blubber, which was a crucial material for heating, lighting, and lubricating machines through much of the 1800s. Because of this, the women of the island lived lives that were very different from women on shore. 
Since so many men were typically gone, floating around at sea and hunting whales, women worked many of the jobs and handled much of the business that needed tending to. Perhaps this unusual society helped create a world where Mariah Mitchell could rise to international prominence as the most important and notable American astronomer of her day. Her family was a Quaker family, which as a religion valued many things, including peace and education. Her parents made sure that she and her siblings would be as educated as anyone else in Massachusetts. This was not a reality most young women experienced at the time. Her father loved to look at the stars with his telescope, with a two-inch lens, and thanks to his mathematical mind and thirst for knowledge, he had gained quite an understanding of astronomy. Though he shared his passion with all of his ten children, it was only Mariah who was completely taken by the stars in the sky. Her mind was mathematical, so calculations, attending to deep details, and processing computations seemed to come naturally to her. At least, that's the way it probably seemed. In reality, she was studious, curious, focused, and worked incredibly hard at school. She worked so hard, in fact, that by the age of 16, she had finished her schooling and was teaching professionally on her own, often teaching students not much younger than she was. Even then, it was important to her to help young women understand math and learn the thought process behind science. And she had plenty of practice with those things herself. When she was only 12, she and her father observed a solar eclipse, and based on all the information that she could collect while observing the event, she was able to calculate the precise geographic location of her home. And she did this in relation to the stars and the eclipsing sun. No Google Earth, no Apple Maps. And by the age of 14, she was the reigning chronometer queen of Nantucket. Many captains of Nantucket whaling vessels would hire her to adjust and check their chronometers. Now, if you're from the 2000s and you have never been on a multi-year whaling expedition, you might not understand how important this tool was. Chronometers were precise and temperamental timekeeping devices that were carried aboard whaling expeditions. They were used to determine the position of a ship through celestial navigation, or navigating by the stars relative to time. You know, the ocean looks pretty much the same once you're out there. There's no landmarks on the water. So sailors would need to calculate by time in comparison to what they saw in the sky. And if the time was wrong because some ham-fisted chronometer-wrecking knucklehead got it wrong, it could spell doom for a ship full of Nantucket sailors spending two to three years out at sea. Word to the wise, you can't trust your chronometer with just anyone. But you could have trusted it with 14-year-old Mariah Mitchell. After teaching for a while and running a successful side hustle as chronometer technician to the stars of the whaling world, Mariah took a job that she would hold for decades. The Nantucket Athenaeum was the first library on the island, and Mariah was its first librarian. This gave her a chance to keep learning, which was something she loved above nearly everything else. At this point, her father had gone to work in a bank, which, like many of Nantucket's buildings, had a walk on the top floor. These walks were high above the ground and offered a place for people to stand outside and watch the sea. 
Most people stood on those walks looking for returning whale ships that carried the men who were missed by so many Nantucketers. And of course, those who did make it back, they probably had a Mariah-adjusted chronometer. But this wasn't Mr. Mitchell's concern from the rooftop walk. True to form, he had built a little observatory for father and daughter to use after their work days. And with their modest tools, they'd spend evenings observing the stars and skies that hung above the sea, making detailed notes of everything that they saw. On October 1st, 1847, Maria had been at a family party, but the party wasn't really doing it for her. And anyway, she was more interested in sweeping the sky, as she did most nights. So she peaced out, said goodbye, and found her way to the two-inch telescope on the rooftop and peered out from her planetary peeping platform. An excited feeling set in when an unfamiliar distant object soon caught her attention through the lens. It was just a little blurry something or other, leaving a faint streak in the darkness, but it was definitely new. When she pulled back from the scope to look with her eyes, she saw nothing. It was invisible without a telescope, so she found herself looking several times through the lens to make sure that she wasn't wrong. The celestial body was clearly there, and it occurred to her that it could be a comet, but it was hard to be sure with just one observation. So she noted it, recorded its position, and then decided to check back in on it the following evening. The next night, she saw it again, but it was in a different spot. When she told her father, he agreed. It was a comet. And more importantly, it was a comet that no one else had ever recorded seeing. He told her she should report her findings immediately, but she wasn't thrilled with that idea. She thought it would be easy for people to disregard the scientific findings of a young woman. After consideration, two days later, the Mitchells sent a letter to the president of Harvard University, who informed them that she should apply for the astronomy medal that was being offered by the King of Denmark. Like his father before him, King Christian VIII offered the prized award to anyone who made the first verified observation of a new comet. So they sent the details of her discovery to Denmark. But Mariah wasn't the only one who saw it. On the day they sent the letter to Harvard, on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, a Jesuit priest named Father De Vico had seen the same comet and fired off a quick message to King Christian. Father De Vico's report made it to His Highness before Marias did, and the big fancy medal made its way to Italy for him to enjoy with great pride. Father De Vico believed he was the first to see and claim the comet. Was he right? He was worse than right. He was wrong. Details were soon revealed, and it was proven that Mariah had seen the comet two days before he had. Father, huh, this is awkward, but do you remember the medal we sent you last year? Oh, you mean my pride and joy, the medal I gaze upon with every sunrise, polish with love daily, and brag about to anyone who will listen? Yes, of course. You must know, my mommy was so proud of me when it arrived. She always said I was her star, and now I'm a gold-winning astronomer. Isn't that wonderful? Anyway, what about it? Um, we need it back. Why? Is there something wrong on it? You'll fix it and bring it back. Yes, okay, sure. No, that's not it. Um, we, uh, oof. 
We gave it to the wrong person. Oh, come again? Yeah, it's, it's not yours. It belongs rightfully to an American woman named Mariah. Mariah? How could this be? We apologize. I'm, I'm so sorry. Uh, but you must understand. I don't want to cry. But you've got me feeling emotions. I can't let go. But you must let go of the medal. It's going to Nantucket, where Mariah lives. I want this medal. But now I know. It's just a sweet, sweet fantasy, baby. When I close my eyes, they come and take it. It's so deep in my daydreams. Yeah, okay, well, good luck. You'll find another comet, probably. Underneath the stars. Someday. The comet in question became known as Miss Mitchell's Comet. And a year after its discovery, the prize from the King of Denmark arrived on Nantucket. But this was only the beginning of Mariah's career in astronomy. She became internationally famous and soon embarked on a European journey where she met many of the world's leading astronomers, fellow female scientist Mary Somerville, and was even able to use the illustrious Vatican Observatory. Not long after her return, Mariah moved to the mainland and worked for the National Coastal Survey and Nautical Almanac until 1865, when the newly founded Vassar College opened in New York State. She was hired as its first professor that year and ran the observatory that was built, primarily for her to use. And for two decades, she educated new generations of women in the sciences and bucked societal expectations by leading classes for ladies at night, which is, of course, prime time for stargazing. She cared deeply about observation, logic, deep thinking, and was also known to reply to a student's answer with statements like, Did you read that in a book, or did you observe that yourself? She also famously fought for her own pay during those years. When she found out that a male professor was getting paid more than she was, she questioned the school as to why. And in the end, she was given the raise that she more than deserved. Mariah died in 1889 with a lifetime worth of accolades and one sweet, sweet medal from the King of Denmark. These days, that medal is shown to the public only once a year by the Mariah Mitchell Association of Nantucket on her birthday, June 1st. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Calling all kids in the car. Brittany and Meredith here from the chart-topping family road trip trivia podcast. Are you dreading another silent car ride with the fam? 
We've Got the Cure, three rounds of fresh trivia every single week. Movies, music, even science and Disney. We've got something for every trivia buff in the car. No more crickets chirping on those long journeys. The Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast is your secret weapon for connecting and laughing with kids of all ages, teens, toddlers, adults, it doesn't matter. Spark their curiosity and challenge their brains with every episode. New episodes drop weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast and turn those car rides into epic adventures. You Have 30 Seconds This Month comes from Marcus, and it's all about a man who had an unusual approach to making the first subway in New York. My name is Marcus. I am seven years old from Round Rock, Texas. I'd like to tell you about Alfred Eli Beach. He was born in Massachusetts, 1826. He lived in New York where he built a fan-powered subway in February of 1870. He got his permission from Boss Tweet. His sneaky plan was to lie and say that it was for mail instead of people. His fan-powered subway closed in 1874. Nice work, Marcus. I love it. I love that story. Uh, who can imagine that they made a successful subway and the cars were pulled through tubes like when you go to the bank and the, the money goes through the tube. Like, there were people in cars like that. That's so awesome. Great job. Thank you for sharing. And if anyone else out there has 30 seconds of historical goodness that they want to share with the world, then you can send that audio file to hello at the past and the curious. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Yes, my friends, once again, it is quiz time. Your first question. In July 2014, the International Astronomical Union, the authority on naming things in space, finally started giving proper names to exoplanets and stars. And one of the very first stars named after a human person was named Cervantes. Who was the star named after? And what did this person do? The star Cervantes is named in honor of writer Miguel de Cervantes, who was the author of Don Quixote. Cervantes is considered to be one of the greatest Spanish language writers of all time and one of the greatest novelists of all time. Okay, question number two. In 1945, Vera Rubin started school at Vassar College, inspired by a hero, Mariah Mitchell. She would eventually prove the existence of dark matter, which was huge. But before that, she became the first woman to use the state-of-the-art telescope, which we featured on this show, which had the largest lens of any telescope at the time. The lens was made in New York, and the telescope was made in California. Maybe that rings a bell. What was the name of the observatory where this telescope stood? Stands. It was one of my favorite episodes to put together because I got to work with my good friend, Joe. I recommend you go find it. Um, and we are, of course, talking about the Palomar Observatory, the Palomar Telescope. Uh, here's a funny story, though. When she got there, she found out that there were no women's restrooms. So with some paper, she modified the silhouette of the door of one of the uh, men on the restrooms and put a skirt on it and said, there, now you have a woman's restroom. Okay, your third and final question. One of the major groupings of stars, or constellations as they're known, is called Ursa Major. 
The arrangement of stars are said to outline the shape of an animal, and the word Ursa is Latin for that animal. What animal is it? Ursa Major translates as Great Bear. So depending on where someone is standing and where it is in the sky, you might be able to say to that person, Be careful, there's a bear right behind you. Julius McKinney's mules froze in their tracks as they pulled a wagon down a dusty road in Sylacauga, Alabama. It was November 30th, 1954, and Julius had loaded the wagon with wood, perhaps for fire, to warm his modest house on the coming cold winter nights. But somewhere on the journey, his wood-filled wagon stood still, stopped in the road as a pair of mules suddenly refused to budge. The animals were clearly nervous and perturbed by something on the road ahead. Julius thought the small dark mass causing the mule paralysis might have been a snake. But when he approached it with a stick, he found it was just a hefty lump, a rock of some sort. It seemed strange that a simple rock would scare his mule so, but something about this stone left the mule standing solid like statues. So he moved it to the side of the road and urged the mules back home. And with the path clear of the mystery lump, off they sauntered. Around that same time, in that same town of Silicago, a woman named Ann Hodges was snuggled up on her sofa underneath a few layers of blankets. She worked in a store in town and had the day off. She didn't feel particularly well, so a nap seemed like a good idea. While her husband was at work and her mother made herself busy, Anne slipped off to dreamland. Her re-entry into reality came rapidly, though, around 2.45 that afternoon, with a loud noise from above her head. And in the flash of an eye, and certainly before Anne could shake the grogginess of a glorious afternoon nap from her swirling head, everything changed in her living room. A hole in the roof. A loud impact, like a cannonball. The air filled with dust and debris. A broken radio and then searing pain in her hip. She had no idea what hit her. Who could have? As far as we know, and what the historical record says, nothing like this had ever happened to anyone ever. In a tizzy, Anne's mother came in, and together they tried to make sense of the scene. The sunlight peeking through the hole in the roof and the dust clouding the air led them to believe that the chimney had collapsed and come tumbling into the home, leaving a gaping hole and likely sending a brick or something straight into Anne's lower body, which was in a growing amount of pain. As the dust cleared, they noticed the radio, a big piece of furniture in most homes of the 1950s, also boasted a large dent. And then they saw the dark rock, the only evidence in the room there was, in fact, no crumbled chimney. There was only this rock which must have caused the hole in the roof, the dent in the radio, and the darkening bruise on Anne's body. So they called the authorities. Well, Mrs. Hodges, I think what we've got here is a meteorite. You mean meteor? Meteor than what? No, meteor. Who's talking about meat? We're talking about things falling from the sky, 
the meat does not fall from the sky. Well, actually... Listen, that's another story entirely, and this ain't no meat shower. I'm here about this hole in your roof, and I'm telling you, it's a meteorite. Am I the first person to be hit by a meteor? No. No one in the course of human events has been hit by a meteor, and no one ever will. Before we go any further, I'm going to need you to understand something. When it's flying around in space, it's a meteoroid. When it enters Earth's atmosphere and it burns out and dissolves and it looks like a shooting star, that's a meteor. When it actually falls all the way to Earth and hits something, in this case, you, then it's a meteorite. And you, Miss Hodges, might be the first person in the world to be hit by a meteorite that we know of. So what about the meat? There is no meat, except for the meat of your leg that took the brunt of the impact, and that bruise is looking really rough. How are you feeling? Oh, it hurts really bad. I don't recommend getting hit by a meteorite. Thank you for getting it correct this time. When Anne's husband came home from work, he found a line of people at their front door. It's not every day that somebody gets hit by a space rock. In fact, it's almost never. So the whole town was curiously filing in one by one to look at the hole in the roof left by the rock and then look at the poor woman who was hit by said rock. It was quite a scene to arrive home to, and it took him a while to make sense of the commotion. But after learning from his wife what had happened, he found that the meteorite itself was gone. Someone from the United States military had come to investigate and took it with them for testing. The Hodges took issue with this. They figured that if a space rock fell into their house, it was their space rock to keep. And it could be a very valuable space rock. Many people and institutions collected such specimens, often paying top dollar. The only one to hit a person should bring a big batch of money that would more than make up for Anne's bruised hip and the hole in the roof. Or so they reasoned. After some effort, the Hodges successfully got the rock back and then hired a lawyer to sell it. The Smithsonian was interested in buying it. But then a woman named Birdie Guy came knocking. She was their landlady. Well, it was my roof that that meteor came crashing through, so I think it's mine. First of all, Birdie, it's a meteorite, not a meteor. Come on. Second of all, I think it might have hit your roof, but more importantly, it hit me. Like, it came down from space by some weird stroke of luck, and it smacked into me. My body. My meteorite. But Birdie did not see it that way. Her property, her meteorite, she reasoned. While the Smithsonian was eager to purchase the meteorite that smashed into Anne... The Hodges had to tell the illustrious institution that they had to wait. There was a legal matter to settle about the ownership of the rock, and they'd be with them shortly. They figured a little delay wouldn't hurt their chances. There was only one meteorite in Sylacauga, Alabama, as far as they knew. Were they right? They were worse than right. They were wrong. Not far away. The news of Anne's injury and the resulting attention that came from her altercation with the home-invading meteorite got Julius McKinney's mind turning. He probably only heard what the rock looked like from the gossip that was spreading around town. Nonetheless, it rung a bell in his head. 
and he remembered that weird rock on the roadway that had spooked his mules. Without hesitation, he returned to the scene and sure as meat fell from the sky in 1876, he found a meteorite that did too. There it was. He was overjoyed that the mule mortifying meteorite was still there. And picking up the chunk, Julius made a beeline back home. Around town, people couldn't stop talking about the event and worked to piece together what they had seen. It had appeared like a fireball above the town, and many reported seeing it split into two pieces somewhere above Silicaga. This was confirmation to James that he was housing another part of the same stone that had smashed into the Hodge house. He had similar ideas to the Hodges. You see, it's not every day that fortune falls like a star from the sky. So it's prudent to take advantage of the situation when it does. Thanks to help from his trusted friend, the local mail carrier, James came into contact with a man in Indianapolis, Indiana, who had a lot of money. He also liked meteorites, and he was a benefactor of the Smithsonian. And soon, the second Silicaga stone was safe and sound in the Smithsonian's collection. The man purchased it and donated it to the museum. No one is sure how much he paid Julius for the meteorite, but Julius was able to purchase his family a new home and a new car, which probably gave those poor skittish mules a break from some of their wagon pulling. They deserved it. Of course, this put a kink in the Hodges' plan. Months later, they settled their dispute with landlady Birdie Guy and agreed to pay her $500 outright for the ownership of the meteorite that had caused such a commotion and disruption in the community. Oh, and not to mention, you know, the physical pain that it caused poor Anne. With the meteorite in hand, and legally their own, they called the Smithsonian. Oh, uh, hey, yeah, uh, no, we're, we're all set. We've got a piece of that meteorite already. But how is that possible? We have it here. It's been this whole legal thing. Like, it's been a nightmare, really. Oh, uh, yeah, it split into two before it hit you, and well, we weren't sure what was happening with you and that bird guy. Birdie, birdie guy. Birdie guy, whatever. Anyway, we have one, and one's all we need, so thanks, but no thanks. Hope you don't get hit by another. I mean, what would the odds of that be anyway? Really, that's impossible. Anyway, thanks. Okay, oh, okay. Well, I guess it'll make a decent doorstop. $500 space doorstop. And that's what it was for a while. The Silicaga meteorite was a doorstop. Until they got sick of it and gave it to the Alabama Museum of Natural History which is where it resides today. The other half, the one that brought fortune to the life of Julius McKinney, it lives in the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. If you're ever nearby either one of them, you should check them out. Well, thanks, everybody. So glad you made it to the end of episode 79. It's not over yet. There's a song, two songs, actually, birthday songs at the end that are really good. Um, I did want to point out that actually one of the songs that I performed in this episode, it's in both of them. It's a very ballady sounding pretty song. Uh, that's an old jazz standard called Stardust, which I put together for this. Um, and um, I wanted to do, there's another jazz standard literally called Stars Fell on Alabama, and it seemed really appropriate. But um, 
I didn't have time to learn it, and I didn't know pe more people know Stardust, so yeah, just a little Easter egg in there for you. Um, once again, I hope you can make it uh, to the Fraser History Museum in Louisville, Kentucky on June 3rd at 11.30. I'll be doing my bit. Um, you can check the website there for details. And if you are a Patreon sponsor, check the uh, Patreon this month because I will have a link to my performance from Boston. You can see that. That's a Patreon patron exclusive. Uh, look forward to sharing that and hearing what you think about that. Also, you may have heard from the audio tag at the beginning of the show that The Past and the Curious is officially part of Airwave Media. Um, and I'm very excited to be a part of that group because um, they will help make me money off of this which i haven't really done uh so that's good hopefully you know so you'll you might hear ads um and just know that those ads are going to help me keep doing this uh and i'm excited about it tumble and what if world and a bunch of other really good friends um reach the space podcast and unspookable all of whom i love uh, and they're all very good friends um they are a part of airwave too so that's very exciting and that's new and i really appreciate your support and that uh you the listener as well speaking of thanks uh i have a couple patreon things matters to tend to jill frank uh thank you so much for your support shout out to you um if there's another person in your life that i need to shout out besides you or instead of you uh then just let me know i sent you a message um and also i have a pair of birthday songs for a pair of siblings Lucy and Drew, uh, I think you had birthdays on different days this month, but you're both in Virginia, as I understand it, uh, and like really doing amazing things. Uh, so happy birthday to you. I hope you enjoy these silly songs that I made up last night in about an hour and a half. Brokering deals 
Lucy and Drew, hope you had happy birthdays. Thank you for your Patreon support. Thank you, everyone, for listening. My name is Mick Sullivan, and this has been The Past and The Curious. Mick Sullivan of The Past and The Curious has a new book available. That's me. I See Lincoln's Underpants is a book about famous people and their underwear. 16 chapters on 16 people and their undies and lots of other stuff, too, like the Underwear Hall of Fame. Lots of laughing, lots of learning. It's available wherever you get your books. And if you wind up with a copy, please leave a review. Be sure to request it at your local library, too. That will help. This is an indie effort. I am an indie operation. Thank you. 